32 counties. United by people. My name is Una. My name is Andrea. And this is United Ireland. United Ireland. Every week in United Ireland, we go backstage and under the hood of issues in Ireland beyond the headlines, bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about without a lot of people shouting at each other in a studio. This week's question or statement, Andrea? Behavioural science and the public mood. Yowza. As tempers fray, what has the head of the ESRI's Behavioural Research Institute learned in uh, not just our year, this year? And what can he tell us at this crucial, crucial moment? Pete Lawn is in the house. This podcast runs entirely on the fuel generated from Patreon. Put some petrol in our tank over patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. Andrew always laughs at that and who knows why. Um, what I would say is though, it is great. Maybe we should, we, maybe we should rebrand from petrol though. Maybe if you could put some solar power in our tank. Okay, yes. Um, but your renewable energy source or your three euro a month or five euro a month or whatever you can afford, if you can afford it, uh, into the little Patreon uh, to keep us going. Thank you to all of our new subscribers. It's been amazing to look at the stats and see our reach grow. Uh, into we, a ju- had, we had PowerPoints and uh, documents <laughs> and uh, but charts. It is- Flip charts. Flip charts. It is amazing, though, we're um, just to uh, be still doing this, I suppose. It's been over a year since we were in the studio. Uh, that means it's over a year until uh, since Andrea has got the mic that I've been asking her to get for, for that entire time. Um, and uh, But what's amazing is the thousands and thousands and thousands of listeners we're having every week now um, for every episode, which is a brilliant. What would be even more brilliant is if you listen to this podcast regularly, um, but you've yet to contribute to the Patreon. It's just like three quid, five quid a month. If you can't afford it, that's totally fine. Tweet about the podcast, put it on your gram, tell people. But we would really appreciate a few more subscribers this week. So if you can do that, that would be fab. But for now, it's a state of the nation. Andrea. I think you should zing in with the first one because you had a zing comment on it. Oh, this is the, the hotel quarantine system. Yeah, I mean... Welcome what, to the hotel quarantine. Whatever you think about the, the hotel quarantine system, whether you think that like everybody should be quarantined when they travel to Ireland or not at all or whatever. I heard Stephen Donnelly, the captain of our good ship, Department of Health, um, just so happens that that ship is also metaphorically stuck in the Suez Canal at the moment. But um, he was talking about the hotel quarantine system being a deterrent and I just feel like if you, you were going to spend all this time, money, effort, planning, personnel, publicity on a deterrent, would you not just spend it on building a functional system that operates beyond just being a deterrent? Um, it just seems to me that if you're going to do this quarantine thing, that it kind of should be done you know, not just as a kind of a sign. Like, I, mean, I think people are like checking in and all that kind of crack. It just, I don't know, if you're going to do it, just do it properly. Also, Hard Rock Hotel on Dame Street being a quarantine hotel. Uh, that was obviously the plan to support the arts. Because <laughs> if you quarantine, then when you leave, you have may have learned, may have picked up a guitar and strung a few chords. I just think that... Um, I know the whole thing about quarantining is that you don't actually leave the building, but, you know, Dame Street is quite a a populous area. Um, But I'm sure they will enjoy the array of U2 and Van Morrison ephemera on display. Um, Big week for the podcast this week, Andrea. United Ireland was the topic of discussion on Claire Byrne's TV show on Monday night. What did you think? Finally, the voices of our nation, the leaders of our countries talking about our podcast the way it should be. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, let me tell you, I was very excited when the lineup, it was, it's like a show or something. Well, it is a show, but like, it's like the lineup's been announced. It's like a concert. I was like, get the Prosecco chili. I'm going to have a watch of this. Uh, I was very excited. Had it in my calendar. Was kept being like, how many minutes to Claire Byrne? How many minutes to Claire Byrne? Um, And I found it very gorgeous that it was respectful it was like like as our Sunday suit intro goes no ranting no raving everyone was friendly and respectful to each other which you just don't see uh 
in these leader debates or uh, TV shows or studio in studio things. And I think we've all been burned so badly with all the debates for referendums, etc., where everyone's just trying to zing each other that it was so nice to watch um, really nice conversations and not point scoring. And it kind of felt like there was um, an intention for everyone to really try and come together on it. Yeah, I tend to not watch uh, these current affairs programs that regularly. And I just thought it was really fantastic. I mean, I think it's been a long time since I've seen a program that dealt with a really complex topic in Ireland in this way. Um, Of course, there was some mad stuff, uh, eye-rolly stuff, like um, Gregory Campbell from the DUP just being like, no, never going to happen. And it's not happening. So you can't tell me it's happening. It's like, well, we are actually talking about it right now. Um, and obviously there's loads My favourite of- line of the night was definitely, I can't believe it's not a United Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I thought what was really interesting was the dynamic between Mary Lou MacDonald and Leo Varadkar, how they were really heard each other out. They were like largely on the same page. And there was just a kind of respectfulness and measured um, thing between them. I think what Mary Lou was saying about how, yes, this could be, um, you know, it's a very big topic, it's a big question, but how it is an opportunity. And then I I guess, um, you know, there were some parts that I just thought, like, I understand that it's important to kind of look at different contexts that, um, you know, the nitty gritty that kind of John Bruton was talking about. But I think what's more um, pertinent is that, you know, it it kind of feels that whatever form a new Ireland or United Ireland or whatever that's going to be becomes um, that, you know, the conversation now has, has really jumped ahead and it, it does feel like some kind of destination towards the, the kind of, that encapsulates, I suppose, the broader arc of social change that has been occurring in this country uh, over the past couple of decades. Yes, but I did think there was a voice missing um, in terms of, so you had the Irish Then you had the Northern Irish, be they uh, Republicans or Unionists. And they were saying, like, you had the, like, we're British, we're British. But there was no British people there who aren't Northern Irish putting their side of it into how they feel about where Northern Ireland fits within their remit, I suppose. And I think that's an important part of the conversation. Mm. Um, yeah, although I guess Gregor Campbell sees himself as, as like he's British, you know. In, yeah, but Northern Irish British. Yeah. Um, so I, like if you're, if you're saying we're British, where is the representation from the mainland, shall we say? <laughs> shall we not say? <laughs> but, uh, but I think what I found, I think, and I think I might write about this for next week, but um, Micheál Martin, um, who had quite a long interview towards the end of the programme, I thought it was really, really just mind blowing because here you have this opportunity to address a nation about a massive, massive issue that is actually central to Fianna Fáil's identity, apparently, uh, like being the Republican Party, quote unquote, um, and that you, you like you're given this platform that you can go on this show you're on your own so you're not like necessarily countering people's points and you have you could have op- an opportunity to lay out your stall to talk about what your party's vision um or everyone's vision as you interpret it from your political standpoint would be and how the Taoiseach shows up and cannot seem to grasp that there needs to be a depth of ambition and just kind of uh, import given to this, and and he kind of just waffled and dithered. And I, th- I actually found it kind of sad because I thought it was like, oh, you don't even get how you're meant to be talking to people. And compared to Mary Lou Macdonald and Leo Varadkar, in fairness, who were 
really talking about like big picture stuff. And what I found interesting was Micheál Martin was talking an awful lot about different governments he'd been a part of in relation to the Good Friday Agreement and so on. And while I appreciate that he has a depth of knowledge and experience in various governments because he's been in a politician for like 50 million years, all of the vast majority of what he was talking about was about the past and the two other leaders were talking about the future. And I think that that says an awful lot with regards to Micheál Martin just not getting that you can't just be like treading water. Now he's been treading water, you know, an awful lot for his career, but it was just like, dude, like this is your opportunity to lay out where you stand. If I was a Fianna Fáil supporter, I would, I don't know, my head would be in my hands. It's like, that's your, that's your spiel? Like what? But I feel like that's exactly the way the pandemic has gone. There's been no kind of bigger thoughts. It's just like, we'll just trod along and get through it and put the head down and, you know, not really have a big picture, a blue sky or a a big moment. Yeah, it makes you really realise, it really brought home to me like how exactly as you're saying, like the government's approach is so with since the government was formed is so informed by Micheál Martin's, um, you know, do nothing, tick along, kick the can down the road attitude. And I, I mean, I thought it was the difference between the kind of younger people who were on like, uh, you know, included in the program talking about their point of view. Uh, Trimble, the rugby player, thought he was fantastic. You know, okay, Gregory Campbell was like being Gregory Campbell, but like at least he has a position <laughs> in some ways. And then you have the Taoiseach saying basically nothing. And I thought it was really stark. I thought it was really, really stark. And I think that maybe people may not pay that much attention to it because it's just like, oh yeah, whatever. He's just kind of waffling again. But actually, it's quite profound, the lack of ambition and the lack of desire for movement. Um, And it also kind of made me really feel that like this shared island unit in the Taoiseach's office is just another another one of his committees or another one of his, you know, yeah, or just another, yeah, another, yeah, another thing to just like deflect inaction towards, um, yeah. Anyway, uh, there's other things happening at the moment. Uh, Minister Helen Mackey is pursuing the children's citizenship rights. Ivana Bacic did an awful lot of work on that. So that's uh, to make it easier pathways for children to get citizenship here, which is very good. Um, Another thing Ivana Bacic has done actually is the announcement for the New Zealand uh, um, paid time off for miscarriage. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Ivana has a bill on that that has now been brought to the fore again and um, has been asked for support. Excellent. Support. Yeah. Uh, what else is going on, Andrea? Uh, something that just struck me uh, the last few days is the mixed messaging around vaccines. Like Micheál Martin's coming, we're going to have 70% of people done by June. Stephen Johnny's like, we're ramping it up in April where this is happening. And, and then it's like, and everyone's like, do we believe them though? Is that going to happen? And then there's a lot of ifs and buts and there's just no concrete. And I know it's a, a, a lot of moving parts, but again, nobody seems to have a definitive, not solution, but like knowledge of wh- when, how this is going, when it's going to be done and how that's going. And it's, I suppose watching all my friends in the UK getting their jabs this week has been very, uh, very emotional. Mm. Um, and it just feels like that, okay, the vaccine is obviously out of our control uh, in so much as we can't get enough. Maybe we should have done other ways of getting some. That's another conversation. But there just doesn't seem to be a prevention plan to go beside it that is about, like, we could, like, if we look at ventilate, like, when we opened Tropop, we had, we bought, like, an air, whatever you're meant to have. We opened the windows. We like we had all the prevention plans in place as well as masks and things. There is a possibility for that to happen that isn't just being looked at um, with all the contingencies that could be uh, put in place to open. It's just very upsetting. Agree. Yeah. The mystery of, of how, why ventilation isn't been foregrounded uh, in public messaging is kind of weird. And that brings us actually to those messaging those messages and and how people respond to them and how people behave uh, for our conversation today about the continued important role that behavioural science is playing in this, particularly now when people are basically losing their minds.
Now we're over a year into the pandemic, in case you haven't noticed. Surprise. Uh, surprise. Surprise. We're still in a global pandemic. Tempers, frustrations, understandably fraying as we continue in this kind of rolling lockdown scenario. Uh, and there's just kind of a low mood um, across the board. I find my own mood really random because some days I'll be like, I've gone for a cycle. I feel like superhuman. And then the next day I'm just like, I guess my life is just always going to be like this. And, 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 and what was it even before? And what even life do I want to have? I don't know what I want, you know, all those kind of things. But we do know what's wrong um, more broadly, I suppose, like public health personnel infrastructure hasn't maybe been beefed up and up, beefed up enough across country. Uh, the contract tracing system seems to have collapsed anytime it's been under severe pressure and is still unsophisticated in terms of identifying outbreaks and tracing back to where cases are and clusters and all that kind of stuff. People are frustrated with others traveling. Uh, political leadership has been lacking and we're comparing our vaccine rollout to others uh, that are going much faster. Um, so at this moment of public frustration, we thought we'd return to the assistance and solutions behavioural science offers to address the challenges of the pandemic. So, Andrea, how do we get over this hump? My hump, my hump, my little lady humps. How do we sustain <laughs> and maintain if things are going to drag on? So let's go, let's go back to where we started last year. I mean, it was March, April when we had a big chat with Pete Lunn of the ESRI uh, and look at the behavioural science perspective and see if that offers some tactics and insight to get through this moment. Pete is the head of the ESRI Behaviour Research Institute. At the outset of the pandemic and throughout, behavioural science really has been key to public health messaging. Um, but in recent months, the, the public mood has plummeted. So we've got Pete uh, in the house today to talk about what uh, his unit has learned about the year and where we're at right now. And I think a lot of what he's saying is going to actually surprise people with regards to where we are. Pete Lunn, how are you feeling? Uh, fairly exhausted, to be honest. Um, it's been a very long haul and longer than I think any of us would have anticipated. What's your working day looking like these days? Uh, it, it varies, but mostly at the moment we have rolling deadlines of trying to provide behavioural science evidence to the government. So we're doing a regular study that is published every two weeks, one of which is about to come out. Um, and depending where we are at in that cycle, my regular working day either involves trying to get that stuff written up super fast or analysing the data or trying to make sure that we're collecting the data and we're on timetable, that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of that going on and then trying to fit the day job around it. At the outset of the, the pandemic, I think it was April last year, you spoke to us about how behavioural scientists essentially had this live global laboratory to study human behaviour in a way that we've never really been able to do because the situation hasn't arisen over for, uh, hasn't ris arisen for over a century and behavioural science wasn't really central to the previous uh, global pandemic Um Looking back on that now, what are the things that have surprised you over the past year about our collective behaviour in Ireland? In Ireland, um, I think it's actually gone extraordinarily well. And that might come as a surprise to people because there's so much focus on non-compliance and you know, how much we're fraying at the edges and how are we coping with this extended level five we're in now. We are in a very difficult situation right now, actually. I mean, it's a crucial moment in the whole thing. And I know that that's said too much. I mean, people say that week in, week out. I mean, I don't say that week in, week out. I think there have been some crucial moments during the pandemic. I mean, one of them was before Christmas. We made a decision that I think most people involved would probably regret, even though it was a popular decision with many at the time. Um, now really is another one of those moments, actually, where we're really trying to get it right. So despite all of that, I mean, if we just strip all of that kind of daily decision making and politics and difficulty way and we look across the entire year, which I think is what you're asking me to do here. I mean, in a way, I think it is absolutely remarkable to watch the large majority of citizens within a society make daily sacrifices for the common good, where there is little in the way of penalty if they don't. Uh, you know, they don't face self-interested incentives to do this, but they're just doing it because it's the right thing to do. Now, of course, there's a minority who are not. 
Um, and of course, we get angry about that. And of course, there's loads of politics about what the rules should be and what they shouldn't be and all of that. But when you take a pace backwards from all of that, it is simply extraordinary what people are willing to do for each other and what they have done for each other over the last year or so, just on a daily basis. What would you say has worked in, in, with those messages of getting people to have that compliance and then what hasn't? Um, and like everything seems to be like there is no pe- there's no penalties involved. So emotion seems to be a key driver of the behavioral change. Would you, would you agree? Oh, there's a lot in your question. Okay. What's worked <laughs> um, with, first, what's worked in messaging? So, I mean, in terms of messaging, it's not so much what's worked as when has it worked and what can we learn from it. I mean, the, the principles behind the messaging have always been and remain now that you have to give people a clear indication of what it is that we all have to do and why that leads to a best collective outcome. And if everyone can see that, what's remarkable is that people will follow it. But there's a lot in that. So some people, and we've got new evidence on this, actually, people who see contradictions rather than seeing a coherent set of restrictions that are going to help us get to our goal, the people who see that as being more contradictory are less likely to follow them. So that whole thing that behavioral scientists have studied for decades now where we say, look, if we're in a collective action problem where we all have to make sacrifices for the common good, the crucial thing is we know what's the goal, what are we trying to achieve? And that's kind of obvious. But it's then, okay, can people clearly see how if we all do X, it will produce the desired collective outcome. And what we can see in our data is that those who can see that that's what it does, who see it as being a coherent plan, are more likely to follow it. And it's the ones who see the contradictions or find it confusing or can't see why that structure is there, why that collective action will produce the outcome we're after. The ones who struggle to perceive it that way are less likely then to do what's needed. So those kind of basic principles are there. But what happens is that becomes more or less difficult at different times. So when you're in a kind of opening up phase and there's all these different industries and sectors lobbying and there's different behaviors in different places and different markets and different businesses and different spaces and all this kind of, all of a sudden that kind of real sense of we are all trying to do this in order to get to our goal gets lost because of the complexity of what it is that you're trying to, trying to achieve, how, how difficult the coordination problem is to get everybody to do what you need them to do. So in a way, I think what we've learned is, is that, that that really is true and that it, it, it varies hugely depending on what phase of the pandemic we're at and what we're really asking people to do. So, yeah, simple, clear, coherent messaging works, but it varies so much over time with what it is you're asking people to do and in what context and where. Can I just, if in that you're talking about clear, coherent messaging, and we seem to have, I think a, a key element of communications is a constantly change, like refreshing of the message, because if you just hear, keep with us, keep with us, keep with us, it kind of loses its power. Is that true? Uh, it, it can be, but interestingly, in these kind of collective action problems, actually repetitive communication can be quite effective, especially if it's repetitive communication that is reporting how most people are doing what's asked of them and how it's working. <laughs> They're getting feedback that, for example, case numbers are falling. So when we've been in real trouble, I mean, when we faced the spikes and the case numbers have really gone up and we've imposed quite strong restrictions, compliance has been really high and we've actually got case numbers down quite quickly on the, on the three occasions that it's happened now. Um, and there you get that kind of perfect cycle of feedback where everyone can see exactly, oh, Jesus, the problem is serious. We all need to do something here. Uh, it's very clear what needs to be done because, ironically, the more severe the lockdown, the easier it is to communicate what needs to be done. Um, and then we see those case numbers fall and they get the feedback of the case numbers falling. And, and that's really helpful as well. So people can really see that what's happening is working. But then you enter these kind of more complex periods. And the repeated communication there provided is telling people this is working and the large majority of people are doing it is actually really, really helpful. Where it becomes kind of wearisome and people really struggle with it, I think is particularly if it's got that kind of, you know, physician patient kind of feel of, oh, you should be doing this, you need to be doing this day after day after day, where you don't have that kind of collective sense, you have that kind of feeling of, I'm being told by authority what I should do. Uh, which we're used to in many aspects of our lives, and we generally find quite tiresome, particularly if it's repeated. <laughs> so I think it really does depend how much you're getting that kind of collective sense that this is working, how much repetition matters. Mm, I guess that's why this moment is a little bit 
difficult or complex for people because so many people are existing in level five and doing all those things, yet we're seeing this plateau of cases. So your behavior, you can't see the effect necessarily. Like you think, well, if everybody's locked in their houses, then cases should be going down. But obviously there's loads of other variables and variants that are contributing to that, I guess, which is probably why we're getting into this frayed public mood scenario right now. Yes. I I mean, we've done recent research on this. Um, And what's happening at the moment, uh, pretty clearly, is that there are a minority of people who are engaging in quite substantially more social activity than the majority. And that minority has increased in recent weeks. The primary problem behavior is social visits to houses, which have gone up quite sharply over the last, um, I'm going to say, sort of four weeks or so four to five weeks or so in particular, they are the primary thing that's caused the case numbers to stall and, if anything, slightly reverse. It's a minority who are engaging in them. Um, And they are a real problem. And whatever decision we make now um, in terms of potentially giving people more freedom, there has to be a really strong argument, I think, for combining that with messaging that makes totally clear that the majority of us are being put at risk by this minority behavior that is utterly unacceptable and that we will give people more freedom, perhaps more freedom outdoors, and that we can lift a small amount of restrictions, perhaps, right? But that what is absolutely unacceptable is a behavior where people are going into each other's houses for extended periods of time, because that's driving at the moment the case numbers back up. And if people keep doing it, we're going to get a fourth wave. Because one of the things that we have learned in the last year is if the virus starts spreading and your case numbers start going up, they will keep going up until you change your behavior. We're now, talking- the vaccine is a game changer there, of course. I mean, yeah. if the vaccine starts to spread, that can change. But at the moment, the vaccination level is too low for that not to still be true. So if they're going up, unless we do something about our behavior, they'll keep going up. You talk about visitors to people's houses being the cause, but you also have then the return to schools, the importation of the new variant from Brazil, the ho- the quarantine hotels only taking in a certain amount of things. So when you see the blame, not the blame, I suppose is the wrong thing to say, but when you're being told it's going to people's houses when all these other things aren't being looked after, that is very frustrating. And how is that being looked after in a calms way? Okay, so you've made a really important point here. And I need to be really careful because I'm a behavioral scientist. I'm not an infectious disease expert and I'm not a public health person, right? But my understanding of the situation is that where you look at the proportions of infection, schools account for a very, very small amount of infections and so does international travel. So while there are perfectly reasonable arguments to be had about school and while there are perfectly reasonable arguments to be had about quarantine, those are not game changers. What we've measured in the last four to five weeks using a thing we call a social activity measure, which is a behavioral study that's just a very matter-of-fact neutral study that's asking people how often they leave their house, where do they go, what do they do, who do they meet. We've seen really large behavior change in that. And that large behavior change primarily revolves around social visits to houses and has coincided with the downward trend stalling. Right, So we're pretty confident that that's the main behavior change. And the paper we've just sent to Neffet essentially says that, that that is the primary behavior change that has caused the current cases to stall. And that fits as far as I'm aware with the modeling data as well that uh, the public health teams have. And as I say, I'm not an expert in that area. What I am an expert in is trying to devise these behavioral studies and set them up and analyze the data that comes from them to get a picture from them. And I think that's pretty consistent, that that is the largest behavior change that we have seen since level five. And it has coincided almost perfectly with the leveling off and slight increase in cases. So that's why I'm confident it's the primary problem. Now, that isn't to belittle the other issues you raise. The other issues you raise are important. But in understanding what's going on now and what needs to be done to get back in control of the disease, I'm pretty sure that that's the primary area of problem. Mm. How do you and like your team and, you know, you're reporting to NAFED and to the government and stuff like that, manage to distill that message and get it out to the public without it being a macro version of people turning on each other or blaming each other because blame and division and conflict can often cause a greater effort to fall apart. So how do we as a society say we know that everybody is really struggling, that this is really wearing and this is really hard we also know that 
you know, despite these these flashpoints or, or touchstones of travel, of schools, of meat plants, of ventilation, whatever, that they're actually not the situation here, lads. And there's a certain percentage of you guys who say you're doing everything, but actually you're going over to people's gaffs to watch a match, to to have dinner with your your mum, to have a few cans or something. How do how do how can you possibly get that message out with people not reacting in a way that makes them feel like they're being, you know, patronized or in a way that actually causes this, you know, mass kerchin twitching and people monitoring each other and calling each other out? Or maybe is that needed? I mean, I don't know. Look, the question you've just asked is the million dollar question. I mean, I, I don't know the answer, but I can conjecture some answers. We have some things in our favor. Uh, one of the things we have in our favor is that the behaviors at the moment that the increases in social activity that have occurred recently, and particularly home visits, isn't only home visits, but it's mostly home visits. But these increases in social activity that have occurred, one of the good things is that they're not within what you might call defined social groups. They're not specific to age and gender or social class. In all of our statistical models, these things are largely non-significant, not entirely non-significant, but largely non-significant. Actually, this behavior change among the minority that I'm talking about is spread across multiple places within society. Um, It is the people who are essentially placing their own interest ahead of the collective interest. And one of the things that's fascinating about behavioral science is you get those in all walks of life, all ages all social groups, all genders, right? It's much more close to a sort of, if, if you like, a personality difference where, you know, and we know this, we know there are people who are more altruistic and generous and we know there are people who look out for themselves more. And that's the primary dimension that's really happening here. Now, there is some other stuff that's interesting, uh, which is to do with misperception because a lot of the people who've engaged in this increased amount of social activity think everyone else is doing it. In fact, many of them think that other people are doing more social activity than they are. So they're also operating under a kind of misperception. They don't realize they're the people that are causing the risk. So that's a really important part of the mm. communications to get across them. No, it's you. If you're engaging in occasional social visits each week to other people's homes, you are the people who are causing the risk and getting that across to people. And that the large majority are not doing that. Half the population doesn't see anyone outside their household at the moment in a 48-hour period. Right? That's what we get in our, in our numbers, right? So that's important to get that across. But what we know of these kind of collective action problems is that your most powerful weapon is essentially polite social disapproval. I mean, we do need to be picking our friends and family up in these kind of marginal cases where they're pushing the boundary and saying, no, actually, it's people doing that that's causing the problem. That's why our case numbers are going back up. So no, I don't want to do that if that's okay. Can we meet outside instead? Can we go for a walk instead? Now, those are hard conversations to have. We know they are. We know that at Christmas, when similar issues arose, that people reported, quite a large proportion of families reported that there was a degree of conflict within their family about what was appropriate and reasonable at Christmas. We can't avoid those conversations. That's the situation we are in. It's not a political choice or that someone who's running society has decided this for us. It's the situations, communities and societies that we face. And what we know about solving them is that what the majority of people who are getting it right have to do is they have to try and convince that minority that they need to be on board because otherwise what we're going to face is we're going to face a lot of fourth wave and a lost summer. And nobody wants that, but that's that's what the outcome will be if we can't actually stick with this. Sounds like so, we need a new campaign around that message. Well, yeah, and of course. And, you know, we, we are trying to feed evidence in um, and we'll, we'll see what comes out at the, at, at the start of April. I mean, that said, you know, I think this has been an extraordinary thing. I mean, going back to the question you asked right at the start, sort of taking a pace back and looking across the whole year, um, I don't in any way wish to be an apologist for politicians, but I think this is an extraordinarily difficult political problem for politicians to engage with, the kind of communication that it involves, the kind of decision-making that it involves. I mean, it's absolutely unprecedented and it's extremely hard. So do we need new messaging? Do we need evidence-informed messaging? Yeah, we do, but it's not an easy problem. It's a hard problem. Mm. Going forward, because I suppose we're in a situation where we don't have an end in sight, and we we do, but we don't, and it keeps getting kicked down longer and longer. How do you how do you use behavioural science to try and get people to stay on board when there doesn't feel like there's an escape at the moment? Well, I think there is an optimistic message to be to be given, and, and the goal that we give people is really important. 
I mean, why I say we're at such a crucial time now is it is possible if we can stick this out and if we can reduce the risky behaviours, because they've gone up too high now, as I say, if we don't change our behaviour, the cases will keep climbing. They have to come back down. That's something that's got to change. But I mean, if we can do that, we have a chance of getting to a point where the large majority of the population are vaccinated because actually willingness to take the vaccine has been rising steadily since before Christmas and is now well over 80% of the population on those measures, right? So we're in really good shape. That's phenomenal. If we can get to the point where that kind of proportion of the population are vaccinated, it is true that we don't know how big a difference it's going to make, but we do know it's going to make a very big one. We don't know exactly how big, we don't know exactly how much residual COVID and how difficult that's going to be to handle afterwards because no society's got to that point yet and we're monitoring this like crazy. I mean, we know who the world leaders are. I mean, we're watching what's happening in Israel and the UK and so on. But there really is a goal here. There really is an optimistic future for us where potentially if we can get to that point, you know, we are in a situation where we can get back perhaps not all the way to normal but a very considerable distance towards normal and we know able to be much freer able to do many things that are going to hugely improve people's well-being so there really is a goal the problem and i think we'll get to that goal anyway the problem is do we get a fourth wave that involves hundreds and potentially thousands more families suffering bereavement between now and then and that's what's at stake that's why it's such an important moment how do you manage collective um depression or depression-like mood. Um, What I found interesting is amongst my friends who, you know, the vast, vast majority of of whom have been, you know, abiding by all the guidelines and everything and, you know, rationally believe that the vaccine is on its way, yet the length of this lockdown is, it's not just, it's not, it's not necessarily making them angry but it's just people's low mood. And that maybe that's not the most acute aspect of maintaining social cohesion around adherence and compliance because if you're a bit depressed, you're probably not going to react by breaking a, a public health guideline. But it seems to me that the reason a lot of people aren't complying in a way out of optimism is because of that kind of collective depression and the lowness. What does behavioral science teach us about how we can kind of boost that somehow or alleviate that? Or is there any model for for how to do that? So the first thing to say is that it isn't low mood that is causing people to break restrictions or to increase their social activity. We can see that in the statistics, actually. Um, so it's not the case that the people who are suffering the most mental anguish in putting up with level five are the people who are most likely to put the rest of us at risk, which is interesting because I think a lot of people assume that it is, but it really isn't. Um, cause what really matters actually is when you look at the situation you're in and then you look at the collective goal and what you should do, um, what really matters is then how you make that trade off. And it turns out that the people in low mood are as willing to make the sacrifices as the people who are, in, who are not low mood. So that's kind of interesting in its own right. So it then becomes a question of, well, look, if that's not what's driving it, it's more a question of can we cope, right? And what coping strategies do we have? And again, I need to be really careful here because it's not my primary area of expertise. My primary area of expertise is decision making, not dealing with low mood and mental health difficulties. But we do know some things about it. We certainly know that young people are suffering more than older people, and that's clear from multiple data sets now in terms of low mood, depression, uh, anxiety, and other mental health problems. It's hit young people much harder than it's hit old people. Um, In fact, there's a kind of steady scale we find across the age distribution where young adults are hit the worst, more so than middle-aged people who, again, are more so than older people. I mean, ironically, the disease targets older people, but the older people's mental health has been least affected by COVID. So that's kind of interesting as well. But in terms of coping strategies, I I, I do think there are things that you can do. And I think there have been decent studies to show this. And as I say, it's not my area of expertise, but I mean, I can communicate some of the kind of findings and ideas. It is definitely true that um, worrying too much about the future and about what you can plan and what you cannot do and doom scrolling and looking through the media and saying, am I going to be able to do this? And am I going to be able to do that? Is really not helpful. Uh, the more time you can spend living in the present and looking at what can I do, what can I definitely do, what can I plan, what can I arrange to do and think about and so on, is definitely helpful. So the, the, the maximum focus on what you can do 
does appear to be useful. And one of the things I've learned during this pandemic that I didn't know much about before is this idea of prospective thinking. So prospective thinking is something that you do about 30 to 40% of the time when your mind is wandering. So when you're not focused on a specific task like this interview or like writing a document, when you're walking down the street, when you're pottering around in the house, doing the dishes, you know, whatever, your mind wanders. And about 30 to 40% of the time that your mind wanders, you engage in what's called prospective thinking, which is think, asking yourself things like, what am I going to do this evening? What am I going to do at the weekend? Where will I be in a couple of months' time? What's going to happen over the summer? I wonder how such and such are is. You get engaged in all this kind of future-oriented prospective thinking, and it's part of the way our minds work. It's part of the way we go about our business. And one of the things that COVID has done is it's absolutely hammered our prospective thinking, because every time you do that, which is something habitual in your life that you do all the time, this thing comes into view and just says, oh, but we don't know you can do that. Or maybe you can't do that. So there's this constant dampener on your imagination, on the way you think about your future. And when you hear people saying things like, oh, I, th I feel like my life is put on hold, it is that damage to their prospective thinking that is the issue. So one of the things we know is to the extent that um, – people can become aware of that, it can be really useful in terms of focusing on what it is that they can actually do, um, in terms of saying, right, if, if that is the case, then what I need to give is I need to give myself some events, some things that are happening that allow me to engage in that perspective thinking in a positive and an optimistic way, even if they aren't events that make me feel as good as would have happened in the old days, where it doesn't matter. Give yourself things to do. Do get in touch with old friends. Do bother to write that letter. Do bother to make an arrangement to meet people to walk in the park. You know, Do decide among your family that you're going to put in place some new system of having movie nights every week where people get to choose a movie and everyone sits and watch it. You know, whatever it is, even if we're sick of them, even if they're mundane at this point because we've been doing this for a year, do it because it gives you things to think about and to look forward to and talk about and engage with, which is what you are missing and what is so dampening of your mood. So that's quite a long answer to a question. It's not really my area of expertise, but I have found that to be hugely helpful myself. And I know many friends of mine have as thinking about it that way. Finally, if you could give just one piece of advice to the government and one piece of advice to the public, what would they both be? Um, Probably they would be the same in the following sense. That to the government, the advice would be try to organize the rules and organize the response and the restrictions to get people outside and out of indoor locations and homes. And to the public, it would be get outside. So in the words um, of George Michael, let's go outside. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Pete. Uh, that was amazing to uh, get an optimistic view and figure out how we're going to get to the end. Keep Thanks up the good work, Pete. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. That was fascinating, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really, really interesting. Um, I think... What I got out of it the most is the Oprah moment of not looking down to the future of the potential of loss and the potential of gain in terms of what you could be doing or what might happen rather to be in the present. And I think that's that's a very good lesson all the time. And it's something that I think in any spiritual thinking, you're taught to kind of be in the present and the cause of anxiety is often uh, what's gone before, or what's to come that's the unknown. Whereas if you literally base yourself and ground yourself into the now, you can work on that. So I think there's a lot to be said about that. Boom. And now what's getting in the sea? <laughs> no, it's not the first time it's gotten in the sea. Hopefully it's the last. Uh, <laughs> I can't like, I literally, it blows my mind that we're still talking about this. So this week, the whitewater rafting facility was denied the 23 million funding from the government, um, which is a shock to a lot of people. Um, and to me, I just, and I, I was corrected, but to me it was like, how has the whims of, it kind of highlighted the lack of democracy and having a non-elected official be unanswerable to anyone to have their passion project be brought so far forward and somebody's like yeah but the it was voted through in council and I was like yeah but it was positioned in a way that it's this or nothing so I think um 
I think there's space for bigger thinking of what will um, serve the people who live in the city. And I think I always say that every person in the city is is as entitled to the city as anybody else. Um, And that hopefully where we get to with that uh, land mass is going to be something that is much more much more relevant to everyone in the city. I'm kind of rambling here, but I just I just think it was such an example of an elitist tech bro um, thing and the argument against it being a training facility. Would you really position a huge training facility right in the city centre? Is there blah blah blah? We've had these conversations anyway. Delighted, uh, whitewater rafting in the sea. And now it's bananas. Two uh, bunches of bananas um, this week. Do you know that a bunch, what a bunch of bananas is actually called a hand? Yes, I believe you've mentioned that before in relation to uh, its bananas. But I will continue to take your banana facts. Um, the first banana item is uh, I'm going to go for the first one. Can I? You sure can. Um, the Green Party implosion again. Uh, I sent I, like when I was um, reading about the three Green Party TDs or not TDs, uh, three Green Party politicians, senators, I believe Pippa Hackett and them um, uh, tabling this vote of no confidence against Hazel Chu, uh, who as the chair of the Green Party. Um, I did send you message you a terrible joke. I said this is awful as well because why would you characterize people in the Greens like this? But I did it anyway. I was like, for a party full of vegans, they sure like devouring themselves. Um, and I think that it speaks to a broader issue within the Greens, obviously, of this what seems to be well. Okay, so you have the ideological divide, right? You have the divide of people who think. Um, you know, the future of the planet's ecology and the climate crisis uh, is not compatible with with capitalism and that, you know, there needs to be a just transition. There needs to be a human centric aspect to this where we need to tackle these very toxic uh, economic systems that are contributing to the climate crisis. And then you have the other uh, part of the Green Party that, you know, calls itself more pragmatic, but maybe in actual fact is actually a bit more short term that says, no, we will actually collaborate with these neoliberal forces to get policy wins over the line. Um, and that's the divide. Saoirse McHugh, obviously the canary in the mine for that split um, in terms of her own politics and, and, and when she left and so on. And, and there has been just this, you know, wave of of uh, rep- representatives at a local level in particular just leaving you know dozens of 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 green party members just leaving all the time and now you have hazel chu who's running as a you know run she is obviously in the green party but she's she can't run under that party umbrella in the shannon because Eamon ryan and co didn't want to run a candidate in the shannon by election because they thought they would lose you know nevertheless she's saying well I, you know, I think it's important for run to run. Um, and so that's what she's doing. And this has caused uproar, obviously. And it, it does. So there's, that is an issue with the ideological divide is an issue. And there's clearly a cultural issue, you know, really a, a play here in the Green Party. There, there is something wrong with their culture in its toxicity uh, that you have people turning on each other like this, that you have these arguments being played out in public and that you have um, all these these people leaving all the time. So like, get your shit together, guys. As beautifully as ever summed up by Miriam Lord, it was like the house of the Martin and the house of Costello Chu uh, taking on the Ryan house. And then they felt it's like at a, at the end of a ball where they all topple into the swimming pool fighting. And she's like, but that's at least a different way to wash your laundry in public. <laughs> Yay. Um, what is your, so that's my uh, bunch of bananas this week. What about you? Uh, my, I, I'm not going to say very much about it. So I'm just going to say that it is actually bananas that on Sunday, six, not 6,000, not 600, six second dose vaccines were given. And this was 
48 hours after the government called on us all to do more. I think it's pretty clear who needs to do more. That's bananas. There's, yeah, there seems to be this weird Sunday issue with second doses. Sometimes there was a Sunday recently where they did 32 uh, second doses. I don't know what's going on with that. That is bananas. I agree. But now, but now it's time for our fave bits. Enlighten me with your joy. Uh, in a, I, I very much didn't have any fave bits this week and I really tried. So I have Claire Byrne in there because I really enjoyed it, but we've talked about that at length. So I will skip over that and then I'll move on to my second fave bit, which is something I've already talked about as well, which is Irish TV. I think there's really great TV being made at the moment. Um, I, I've gone on about eating with the enemy. I think that's a really good show that really brings together what unites us and is a really great show but also home of the year it's like appointment tv for me at the moment now obviously there's a few other things that are playing into the reasons why i might have appointment tv each week but they are definitely uh part of the part of it cool. <laughs> my fave bits um for those i love is on other voices Thursday 11pm if you're listening to this on Thursday it's 11pm on RT2 or on the player or you can watch it back uh, this was one of the most phenomenal performances that I've actually ever seen in my life uh, was lucky enough to be in the room wrote a piece about Dave Balfe at the weekend that was in the ticket in the Irish Times um, it, yeah just just watch it you know uh, absolutely raging that uh, Other Voices is on so late I don't know what RT is at uh, with their uh, scheduling, um, but I'm very interesting that their St Patrick's Day celebration was very close to another Voices vibe that was very popular. So it's like, why would you not just make it prime time, babes? Uh, yeah. Uh, related to that, um, the Journal of Music, which is like a music industry journal and website, uh, there's a piece on that 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 contains one of the concerns uh, that I've just mentioned here with regards to music programming making and scheduling Gareth Murphy wrote this piece about the future of the Irish music industry and what's needed and it's something that I've ta- like been talking about within my you know music industry <laughs> friends circles I don't know what with people who are friends who work in the music industry for years and years about how we lack this um very healthy infrastructure in terms of labels, um, labels and management and things like that. Um, bands and artists are constantly asking me over the years, you know, like uh, questions about who they should go to go to for management or agents or, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and it, you know, the sad aspect of it is that, uh, you know, the majority of it, the, the the industry that music and a lot of Irish musicians interact with is not actually the Irish music industry, right? So they're going to the UK to get their agents and management and PR and or they're signing um, publishing or uh, different deals with American or UK or European labels. Um, and this is like a massive issue, right? Because we, we have so many brilliant artists, but we don't have the industry infrastructure to maintain them. Uh, there just seems to be this kind of huge gap between like big promoters and then the artists and in between while there are some really good music PRs there are some really good music managers there are some really good small uh, indie labels there's not that fabric of uh, infrastructure the industry that we need you know like where's our XL recordings for example like we have all these amazing artists and Gareth Murphy wrote this piece on the Journal of Music which you can read online about the issue with the fact that we are essentially exporting um, our copyright and publishing from this island when we should be, be keeping it um, so that's really interesting read that that's one of my fave bits and uh, my other fave bit also music also by live music uh, Pillow Queens are doing the Holy Show full length performance of their album on Friday uh, this week tickets on Dice FM can check I, it out can I add two more fave bits yes you can fab videos by Whoop Evit Women making deadly music in the forums of Saint Sister yes and yes yes Seamat Saint Sister yes um, wow, what about CMAT and Saint Sister in a band together? Yeah, well, maybe not in a band, but maybe a little collab. Yeah, that'd be cool. I'd be down for that. 
Um, okay, so my book of the week this week, uh, I finished my week without Gerard on Morbid Books, which I mentioned last week. Uh, just gets like even crazier towards the end, um, which I wasn't prepared for. But if you if you want a um, surrealist detective novel lampooning countercultural journalism, uh, then this is for you. Uh, however, my book this week is called Virtue Hoarders, The Case Against the Professional Managerial Class by Catherine Liu. I bought this book uh, on the basis of its title. I think Virtue Hoarders is a very provocative and interesting statement. Um, and I actually think I first came across it on John Early's Instagram, uh, the actor and comedian, which is a bit random. I guess he's friends with Catherine Liu and he was doing these like Instagram live chats uh, with her. So I bought the book. I anticipated that it would be on the basis of the title, you know, this big takedown of like post hipster tech capitalism um, and the wealth that is being maintained amongst people who uh, benefit from the the creative structures that they are upholding the systems that oppress. That's what that's what that was my <laughs> that was my anticipation. This is what I think this book is about. Yeah, what is it actually about? <laughs> but it, it it is it's kind of about that, but it's more like a socialist polemic um, from an American perspective about how uh, wealth is being concentrated amongst a cohort of people, uh, not just the billionaire class and all of that who hoard virtue and use it against the working classes um, and, uh, you know, the kind of deplorables type rhetoric. So I was hoping for something more than, than, than socialism, basically. Not that there's anything wrong with socialism, but I guess, um, yeah, I mean, I sometimes struggle with reading socialist arguments from an American perspective because I just feel like I know do you know that kind of way? So, but at the same time, I think there are interesting things um, to pull out from it. So, I mean, there's lots of in it that I disagree with, and there's lots that I find interesting that I do agree with. Um, but it is—it's an interesting book, and um, maybe didn't live up to the title as much as I was projecting <laughs> my own biases. So, my book that I was writing about virtue horses would be. But I think it's an interesting um, provocation and challenge to uh, the kind of the times that we live in. So, yeah, that's my book of the week. Um, this book of the week, book of the week, book of the week, book of the week, book of the week. Andrew, can you please put in a book of the week, book of the week jingle right there? I think we need it. And uh, no. Book of the week. Blankety uh, blank to the sound of blankety blank. Book of the week, book of the week, book this, of the week. <laughs> this podcast is produced by Andrew Mang and Castaway Media. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack. Sarah Fox did all our design. Speaking of tuna chicken rolls, Andrea, what's this week's one? That was very uh, Tony Phantom. This week's tuna chicken roll is... It's been on my repetition. I get into a very like bad cycle of listening to one song all the time. And this has been the one. It's Romy from the XX. She went solo and she released Lifetime, which was released in October, September, October. Um, and it was a kind of reflection on the pandemic and how she, the relationships within the pandemic and wanting to be with people and whatever. So it just felt kind of feels timely as we're at this crucial moment and it's a bop it's an absolute tuna I've been Una Mullally I've been Andrea Horan this has been United Ireland and that was Behavioural Science Holds the Answers can we not call it my hump my hump my little lady hump no? no I don't think so bye bye <laughs> <laughs>
Once in a life 